Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may, have, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Lord, thank you for your provision for us. We offer you these gifts in hope and trust and joy, and we ask that you will please use them for your work and your glory in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
chilly today. Nipple fall was in the air. So I brought some things with me. Maybe you can help me. Oh, goodness. Um, I was thinking about God's love today, well, this week. And so I brought some things to help. Um, how can we measure God's love? I have a measuring cup. Can I, not big enough? No? But it's a, the biggest one I have. I mean, I have my measuring spoons and measuring cups. These are great if I'm cooking, but it's bigger than that. I know that um, in Psalm 23, it says that my cup runs over. I think this cup would probably run over with God's love. All right, so measuring cups aren't going to work. I have a tape measure. I use this when I sew. And we use this one when we're building things. Yeah? We can measure how, how high and how wide and how deep. Yes? Will it work? No? We used to sing a song when I was a kid called Deep and Wide. I don't know if any of you ever heard that song, but it was deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide, and then they leave out the words. We're not going to sing it. But we, we can't, this is a pretty big tape measure. It says it's 25 feet. Not big enough? I have a scale. Can we weigh God's love? No? About a clock. Can we t- measure it by time? How are we supposed to know how big God's love is? A little bit louder. God's love is immeasurable. And that's what the scripture says today. In verses 18 and 19, I believe it is, that Paul is praying that people will have the understanding and the power to understand how immeasurable it is. Um, It says, May you have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And it's beyond me to understand how big it is. I mean, I think that 25 feet is pretty big. Probably higher than the ceiling. This this won't go that far. So even that high. God's love is so immeasurable, it's just incredible, that I can't even wrap my head around it. And it's so deep that even when we feel unlovable, he still loves us. I mean, there's some days I'm like, oh God, I know you don't love me today. But he does. He loves me anyway, no matter what. Pretty incredible God that we have. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that your love is so wide and so high and so deep and so immeasurable that we can't grasp it. We just need to learn to accept it and know that you love us no matter what. No matter what we are like, no matter what we've done, you don't give up on us. You love us anyway. So we thank you for that and we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, your gift of love is so beyond anything that we can comprehend. 
And yet, we have this passage about it. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand the extent to which you allow us to, um, to which you want us to, so that we can go forward looking more and more like you. In your name, amen. You guys know I'm a nerd, right? You can say yeah. <laughs> so, so since Ron sometimes wants to understand the titles that I give to these uh, sermons, this one is the masterpiece of a mystery. It's a really awkward phrasing. I was kind of, the Apostle Paul, you might have noticed in the passage that this Paul read for us, um, uses the word mystery a whole lot in this passage, and so I like PBS and masterpiece mystery shows, so I just kind of messed with the title. That's really all that it has to do with anything. Um, the Apostle Paul is telling us about, other translations call it a secret, um, our translation calls it a mystery, that has been in place throughout human history. Does anyone know what it is? Unity? Okay. Okay, height, width, width, depth, and length of God's love. Maybe they're the same thing. Um, I was actually hoping that somebody would be snarky and say, I don't know, it's a mystery, but you didn't do that for me. I, you were the person I was expecting to do that, so thank you. <laughs> um, although it could have been this guy. <laughs> you do. <laughs> In this context, the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery or secret to explain, to describe something that we can't fully fathom. We can't completely comprehend it ever. We won't ever be able to. Um, strangely, this mystery does have to do with the murder of the Messiah. But the mystery is not who did it. We all did it. The people back then did it. We did it. The mystery is what that accomplished. And what it accomplished is God's new family, the merger of two different family systems, like we talked about last week, into a new one, a brand new one. Um, basically, that's what this whole chapter is about, too. It just describes it in a different way. It talks about it more. So if there was any doubt in your mind that unity among people as well as unity with God is an essential part of the gospel, I hope that the fact that there are two whole chapters about it might clue you in to that is what the gospel is. It's both reconciliation with God and reconciliation with people. The mystery when Paul is talking about mystery, at least in this chapter, he's not actually specifically talking, even talking about the mystery that it is that human beings can be reconciled with God. He is talking about the mystery of the fact that human beings in God can be reconciled with each other. That is a mystery. And I was thinking about this this week, and I thought, you know what, maybe... Reconciling humans with humans is more of a mystery because in the reconciliation of humans and God, 
at least one of the two parties is fully invested in that reconciliation. God really, really, really loves us and really, really wants to be reconciled with us. And so he just really wants to make it happen. But human beings, we just don't always like each other that much, right? If, if we have a problem with somebody else, it is much easier to just cut them out of our lives than try to reconcile with them. So this idea that one group of people and another group of people who have had a historic problem for millennia could actually join together, be reconciled in God is a mystery. Maybe the human-to-human -human part of the gospel is actually harder, more miraculous, and more mysterious than the God-human part. There is an extent to which it is important and appropriate that we can't fully explain or understand the mystery of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. A couple years ago, we did an entire Lenten sermon series on the atonement and different ways that people talk about what, it, what exactly happened and how it worked that, God's, that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection actually accomplished these reconciliations. There are lots of ways to talk about it, and my personal, we talk, we, there were seven sermons, seven different views on that issue, and I kind of think they're all right, and they probably still, none of them go far enough. Um, we will never be able to fully understand the mystery of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. That said, we've already talked about Apostle Paul's writing style. <laughs> so he's talking about this mystery, and he's saying everybody needs to understand it, but it's a little hard to understand this passage. <laughs> so um, I am going to quote verses from this as we go through this talk today, and I'm quoting from a tr translation of the New Testament, only the New Testament, called the Kingdom New Testament. And the way that it's worded makes it a little bit easier to understand as much as the Apostle Paul, at least, wants us to understand. So, um, in verse 1, in this translation, Paul says, it's because of all this, all this is everything that we've talked about since the beginning of the sermon series, since the beginning of chapter 1, it's because of all this that I, Paul, the prisoner of King Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, then he cuts himself off. This is kind of funny. This, the beginning of this chapter actually cr kind of cracks me up because Paul interrupts himself. He's actually not, most likely not writing this letter with his own hands. He is dictating. So whoever is copying down what Paul is saying is writing it the way Paul is talking. And so, so Paul says, it's because of all this that I, Paul, the prisoner of King Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, then he just kind of like goes into some other thought. But something we need to notice from this cutoff sentence is that Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter. He is in prison because of the fact that he's helping Gentiles join the family of God. He doesn't give credit to the Romans for his being in prison, even though he, it's the Romans who are imprisoning him. He doesn't give the Jewish leaders who sent him there, uh, sort of, 
the credit either. He says he's imprisoned by Jesus. He's taking whatever happens to him, good or bad, for Jesus' sake and the sake of the reconciling gospel. So he's not saying, I'm in prison for Jesus, meaning I'm being punished by Jesus. He's not being punished by Jesus. He's saying, I am so invested in doing what Jesus wants because of Jesus' great love that we've already talked about for two chapters, that this imprisonment is just another tool of Jesus. I am imprisoned to Jesus. I don't care about these Roman people. Just Jesus. He is in prison for helping the Gentiles join the family of God. Verses 2 to 4, he says, I'm assuming, by the way, that you've heard about the plan of God's grace that was given to me to pass on to you. You know, the secret purpose that God revealed to me as I wrote briefly just now. Anyway, <laughs> he's, he's really just kind of stream of consciousness rambling. Um, also, as I wrote briefly just now, for two whole chapters, one half of which was one sentence, <laughs> three, verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 was one sentence, he doesn't, yeah, he's just, he's just really into what he's talking about. Still, we talked about how excited he was at the beginning of chapter 1. He's still really excited. Verses 4 to 6. When you read this, you'll be able to understand the special insight I have into the king's secret or mystery. This wasn't made known to human beings in previous generations, but now it's been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The secret or mystery is this that through the gospel, the Gentiles are to share Israel's inheritance. They are to become fellow members of the body along with them, Israel, and fellow sharers of the promise in King Jesus. This plan to bring Gentiles into the family of God was the plan ever since God chose a family to work with. That was Abraham's family. Actually, it was the plan before that, but God started setting it up in Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is where God starts to just hint at this mystery that Paul is now telling us about. And then, and we see threads of it throughout the Hebrew scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 19, which we read as our responsive reading, we see Egypt and Assyria being brought in as, a, as two other nations with Israel that God is claiming for himself. This is, Egypt and Assyria represent, in this pas in the Isaiah passage, represent Gentile nations, they represent, they're significant, though, to Israel's history. Egypt, we know, was the nation that enslaved the people of Israel before God called them out to the Promised Land and kind of gave them their identity. So the Egyptians were enslaved enslavers to the people of God, and then the Assyrians actually took over the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel after Israel and Judah split apart. And they, they attacked both countries, but they took into exile the ten tribes of Israel. And so they were warlike. So they, 
both of these nations represent pivotal periods in Israel's history, and they also represent the two types of oppression that the people of God have experienced, slavery and war. And in that passage, and then it, Paul is kind of, he doesn't refer to Isaiah 19, but he's kind of talking along the same lines, this idea that the people of God aren't going to be oppressed by the people of God among the Gentiles anymore. And the Gentiles aren't going to be looked down on by the Jews anymore, like we talked, by, talked about last week. Both groups have been unjust to each other, and Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection not only took the punishment for our individual sins that was keeping us apart from God, but it takes apart the sin that we've committed against each other that keeps us apart from each other. So this is the gospel, says Paul in verse 7, that I was appointed to serve in line with the free gift of God's grace that was given to me. It was backed up with the power through which God accomplishes his work. So last week, I asked you, how would you describe the gospel, which we know means good news, how, today, how would you describe the gospel? Okay, it's a mystery. <laughs> Christ born, crucified, and risen. How is that good news? Okay, we don't have to... What's that? The new covenant. Well, the sacred texts tell us about it. Okay. I'm still going to say, <laughs> there, all of these are pieces of it. The good news for human beings is God loved us so much. First of all, he made us. And he made us with a purpose. God made, we talked about this, this, isn't the, this is like the preamble to the good news. We talked about this in the temple series at the beginning of the year. God made all of creation out of love, and he made it good, and he made humans to represent him to the rest of creation, to bring creation into his loving order. Remember, there's chaos in the universe, there's chaos around, and God orders the chaos, and then he invites us to help him order the chaos. And the good news is that even though human beings messed that up and we took chaos into ourselves and we have chaos in our relationships with each other and our relationship with God, Jesus, as both God and human, took the responsibility for all that chaos, put it on the cross, and those of us who put our trust in him now can be reconciled to God so that we can be reconciled to each other and do the thing that God put us here to do in the first place. Even before Jesus comes back, we get to be human beings who are actually doing the things, the human being things that God intended for us to do in the first place. And this isn't just theory. I think this is sometimes the problem when we talk about the gospel we have just read about it so much that we don't understand that it's really about 
everything, who, everything we are, the good news is we get to get ourselves back and who God created humans to be. And so the Apostle Paul is saying here, he's saying, this isn't just theory. The power God uses to do all of his work, the power that, he, that Paul especially talked about in chapter 1, confirmed that this reconciliation between God's people and the nations of the world under God himself was always the plan. So if this is a mystery or this is a secret or um, this is some kind of like kingdom game plan that God had, who needs to know this mystery? Everybody. The way that Paul kind of breaks it down, at least in the Kingdom New Testament translation, he says, well, first of all, he has this little aside because we know he's interrupting himself all over the place in this chapter. He says, I am the very least of God's people. This is a big deal for him to say. Just note, he was actually not the least of the Jewish people. He was kind of a big deal until God knocked him off his horse and said, why are you persecuting the Messiah? He had persecuted God's new family who were God's people through the Messiah. All of those people at the time were Jewish but they had embraced Jesus. And Paul has been humbled, and he knows that he is in as much need or more of the grace of God, and so he calls himself the least of God's people, and he is joy-filled, where he would have been scandalized before, to be bringing this good news about this mystery that Gentiles get to be part of the kingdom too, be part of this family too. And then he says, however, he gave me this task as a gift that I should be the one to tell the Gentiles the good news of the king's wealth, wealth that no one could begin to count. My job is to make clear to everyone just what the secret plan is, the purpose that's been hidden from the very beginning of the world and God who created all things. This is it, that God's wisdom in all its rich variety was to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So, why are the Gentiles, everyone, and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places need to know the mystery? We are all part of creation. Any other thoughts? We're all in need of saving. Yes, so that we can all find out what God's original intention is. So, I, But I think we can kind of break this down a little bit. The Gentiles need to know because up to this point, the Gentiles have not known that they can embrace the Jewish God, the God that the Jews have been worshiping forever and, well, not forever, but for a really long time, and um, who the Jews have been representing. Paul's saying, hey, Gentiles, you can do this too. You can worship this God too. You can belong to this God too. Everyone needs to know because those who are not yet part of God's family need to know that they can find reconciliation with God and with other humans. And those who are in the family need to know because 
that, doesn't, that means that we have no excuse to keep people out just because of a particular status that they have. These Jewish, the Jewish Christians that Paul knew, Paul would say, you can't keep these people out just because they're Gentiles if they love Jesus and they have the Holy Spirit like you do. People in the family need to work together with God for this reconciliation among other people. And if we know that this is the mystery, then we know what our purpose is, what the family plan is. And the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places need to know because God is planning to overturn the world order through this family of his. So we need to pause on this for a second, even though it's getting late. Um, in this book of Ephesians, underlying it, we're about, the next couple chapters are going to get pretty practical. They're going to be kind of a how-to. This is what you need to do as God's family members. But underlying the whole thing is this idea that we're not just living on this physical plane and kind of we can pray and stuff, but we're kind of holding off until um, we get to heaven and, we're, and then we're really spiritual or something like that. The spiritual realm and the physical realm that we can see and feel and everything are really together in this letter in the way that Paul talks about things. He already, in chapter 1, he talks about us being seated at the right hand of God or seated with Christ and... So there's something that we need to understand about what one thing that happened when sin entered the human experience. Um, and this isn't, there's not like one Bible passage that I can point to, but we could do a whole big study about this. It would take a long time. Um, because there are pieces in the Bible which if you put them together and um, listen to the Holy Spirit and interact with other people who, who do the same thing, um, you can see that we don't know a ton about the other, the other spiritual beings, but we can know that when sin separated us from God, sometime, either right before or after that, there was also a rebellion among the spiritual beings, the angels and other spiritual beings in God's kingdom. And God has a heavenly council. God is God. Nobody else is God. But God has spiritual entities around him that he is, because God is really humble, um, that he allows to be in charge of various things. And there's an idea that when, um, when sin came into the world, especially at the Tower of Babel, when people tried to be like God again as a group and God separated them by language, um, he kind of gave different people groups into the charge of spiritual entities. And I'm not going to call them demons. Um, they are just, a or angels, they're just a spiritual entity. The nation of Israel had Michael, the archangel. Um, and there, if you read the prophet Daniel, he talks about um, the prince of Persia. Um, so that's another spiritual entity. And God was still God of the world, king of the world, like we sang earlier. But these other spiritual entities, God has allowed to have some power over other people groups. But he said, 
I am going to get the, the whole human family back. I'm going to get them back, and I'm going to start with this one family, and that's Abraham's family. So this is the backdrop for why God chooses Abraham's family and spends so much time working with the Hebrew people to help them get to know him and to um, give them their identity so that this mystery that Paul's talking about can happen. So they can reach out and the Messiah can reach out and bring all of these people under God, under Jesus Christ. And these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places used to be in charge of the nations while God was forming his own family, but now this is the mystery. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the human and God person, those of us who belong to and follow him are now seated with him in the heavenly places, which it says in chapter 1. And so this old council... This old heavenly council has to move over because the church is supposed to be it. This is insane. Because, I mean, have you noticed the church lately? (laughs) I'm not talking this one. I mean, at large. God intends the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places to be shown up by the church. And guess how that's not going to happen if we're all fighting amongst each other or saying who can't be there even if they know and love Jesus. Because of Jesus, we are intended to be the new heavenly council. And this is the other reason why it is so important that reconciliation among people is also part of the gospel. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, this reconciled human family of God that looks like him and accomplishes in the world what God created humans to do in the first place, this was God's eternal purpose. And he's accomplished it in King Jesus our Lord. God has accomplished reconciliation in Jesus between humanity and God and between humans and each other when we join Jesus' body. When we join Jesus' body, we have to reconcile so he will be one, so he can bring all of us before the Father. Imagine Jesus all in pieces trying to come before the Father and have an effective council meeting. doesn't work. It seems crazy to say that God has already accomplished this because we see so much division among God's people. It's a mystery. I can't fully explain that. I know, though, that God wants us to cooperate with his spirit towards this reconciliation. Jesus has accomplished this completely through grace And the proof of it has to come through our lives. Our lives need to show grace and reconciliation. If human beings can be united in Jesus Christ, that will show up the council, the heavenly council. Because they don't think we can do it, and we can't on our own. 
but we have the grace of Jesus, and he accomplished it on the cross. So, in verse 12, Paul says, we have confidence and access to God in Jesus in full assurance through his faithfulness. In verse 13, I beg you, don't lose heart because of my sufferings on your behalf. That's your glory. Paul is delighted to suffer like Jesus did for the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles in Christ Jesus. He gets to participate in fulfilling the mysterious, miraculous purpose of God, and they get to participate in the glory of God's family. They didn't know they could do that. They can through Jesus Christ. And this suffering that Paul's talking about is the suffering we commemorate in communion. Jesus bore the suffering caused by the rifts of sin, both the suffering that comes from the rifts between us and God and the suffering that comes between people to mend them. Jesus came to mend them. Communion, we call it communion, and we don't always think about it, but I still remember... Um, I don't remember your grandson's name. R.B.? Yeah. R.B.'s saying, when I brought up communion at a family dinner one time, and he said, community. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you got it. We call it community, communion, because it is about community. It is about both our restoration to God and God's family and our identification with each other. When the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians that we need to recognize the body of Christ when we take communion, he means Christ and the body of Christ. So when we take communion, we are communing with God and we are communing with each other. We are acknowledging the grace God has given us to belong to him. And we're also acknowledging the mysterious grace God has given us to belong to each other. So we're going to celebrate communion, but first I'm going to pray. I'm really glad that Barb focused on the prayer at the end of this passage in her sermon because I am just going to pray it. I'm going to pray the version that's in the Kingdom New Testament, and it talks about kneeling down. Um, we're Baptists, so we don't do a whole lot with our bodies in church services. We stand up, we sit down, <laughs> that's it. Um, and then sometimes we sing songs about raising our hands or dancing, and we don't do those things either. And I, and I always feel kind of conflicted about that. So I'm going to pray this, and I'm going to kneel down over here. Um, it's a genuine prayer. After I pray it, we'll sing the communion hymn together, and then we'll celebrate communion together. And if you want to kneel, you can, if there's room. Because of this, I am kneeling down before the Father, the one who gives the name of family to every family that there is, in heaven and on earth. My prayer is this, that he will lay out all the riches of his glory to give you strength and power through his spirit in your inner being, that the king may make his home in your hearts through faith, that love may be your root, your firm foundation, and that you may be strong enough with all God's holy ones, to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the king's love, though actually it's so deep that nobody can really know it. So may God fill you with all his fullness, 
to the one who is capable of doing far, far more than we ask or imagine, granted the power which is working in us, to him be glory in the church and in King Jesus to all generations and to the ages of ages. Amen.